0: This is Go West Young Podcast, your show about America's public lands and the outdoors. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. In just a minute, we are going to talk to Steve Ellis. He spent nearly four decades working for the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service, rising all the way into the ranks of the top brass at the BLM. He's now a member of the Public Lands Foundation, which is a BLM retirees organization, as well as the Forest Service Retirees Association. He is one of 30 former senior executives who signed a letter to the Interior Department opposing the relocation or perhaps better called the evisceration of the Bureau. So what does he think is really going on with the Trump administration trying to move BLM headquarters out of Washington? We'll ask him in just a minute. But first, let's do a little news. Hundreds of pages of internal emails show that Interior Secretary David Bernhardt is serious about navigating the ethical morass that he brought with him to the Interior Department, but that Bernhardt is often in the business of giving ethics advice, not receiving it. Coral Davenport broke all this down in a big New York Times piece that ran last weekend. She pointed to a meeting on the endangered Delta smelt, which Bernhardt worked for years against as a lobbyist. Despite all that, Bernhardt wrote to a career ethics lawyer just hours before that meeting, telling him, quote, I see nothing here that would preclude my involvement. In other words, with no time left on the clock, Bernhardt told an ethics lawyer exactly what he wanted to hear, and lo and behold, that lawyer, named Ed McDonald, agreed with Bernhardt. And after that, Daniel Giorgiani, the top lawyer at Interior, chimed in with a pat on the back for McDonald, telling him, quote, superb value creation much appreciated. As Coral Davenport Riley noted in her story, value creation is usually not the job of an ethics lawyer. Four former interior officials described this relationship and the emails in question as, quote, extraordinary, atypical, and intimidation. One other story to note, this one out of the Denver Post, Colorado's oil industry is facing a financial reckoning over debt, For years, Wall Street was happy to watch drillers grow production as quickly as possible, taking on huge debt in order to drill more and faster. But that is changing. Now investors want to see oil companies generate surplus cash, not take on more debt. Over the last five years, the eight largest public producers that are active in Colorado have spent $27 billion more than they made. So they are saddled with debt, capital is running short, and oil prices are relatively low. Oil company stocks are way down over the last two years, and as long as oil prices stay in this $50 to $55 a barrel range where they are, you can expect more of the same, less drilling, less debt, and more demands that oil companies get their financial house in order. Our guest this week is Steve Ellis. He's had a career in public lands that dates back to the Carter administration, including stints as a type three wildfire incident commander, a field manager, a forest supervisor, Bureau of Land Management state director in Idaho, culminating as the deputy director of operations at BLM during the Obama administration. Steve Ellis, welcome to the podcast. Well,
1: thank you for having me, Sarah.
0: So let's start with this relocation or evisceration of the Bureau of Land Management Headquarters. Just this week, we heard that hundreds of career employees got the official notices giving them 30 days to decide whether or not to move their families across the country or find a new job. You're obviously very well connected with all of these folks. What are you hearing, without giving us names, what are you hearing from inside the Bureau?
1: Well,
0: you know, I've been hearing from
1: uh, employees for quite a while on this. You know, when when Secretary Zinke you know uh, first came in, I think one of the first things he said to employees is we're going to reorganize, and of course uh, employees always going go on point when they hear that. And uh, and there's been plenty of drama ever since. Uh, you know, I you know recently uh, yesterday read these two articles from Government Executive and some of the employee comments and you know quotes that run these articles and and looking at them, I think they, they really capture pretty well uh you know what I'm hearing from, from current employees, uh, you know, which you know, calls and KG uh messages they send, you know, the personal emails. But um you know, if 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 I if I look at this thing, and employees you know they're not dumb I and mean, they see through this stuff. Uh, from the get-go, you know, what is the problem they're trying to solve here? You know, what is being fixed? You know, what is broken? And in, in the 38-year career, you know, I've been involved in various organizations, and, and uh, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, uh, there's a reason to do this. Uh, and, you know, to make the agency more efficient. And, you know, I hear some sound bites coming out of the department about, uh, well, we're going to save money uh, you know necessarily to save uh, money on that, uh, but yet they they haven't provided any proof of this, right? any documentation, any sort of a cost benefit analysis uh, which is something you normally do in these types of things. You're normally penciled out and and so you know, I'm hearing this these sound bites, I think a lot of the public is when we these sound bites, but yet they've provided no evidence that this is actually going to save taxpayers' money. And so, so what they're doing, you know, they're making really a historic agency-altering decision uh, that, uh, in my opinion, is going to hamstring the agency in, in its ability to accomplish this mission under footma and, and really, in all likelihood, its future viability by, uh, by removing uh, career leadership presence from the nation's capital.
0: Let's go back. You mentioned this government executive article. Uh, It leads off with one BLM employee in D.C. who is caring for her mother with Alzheimer's. And instead, BLM is saying she's got to move to Arizona. And she points out that our roots are here. We can't move because we grew up here. Are there stories like that that you are hearing from inside the agency? I, I assume this is not just one person with this type of predicament.
1: No, it, it's not unique. You know, I, you know, I've gotten emails from some employees and, you know, I jotted down, you know, a few quotes of some of them that I've gotten, and, and this is probably over the last, you know, a couple of three months. And, uh, you know, here's one, uh, you know, I'm reading from some of them. Uh, you know, this one employee says, the administration does not respect career employees. Uh, you know, we are the swamp. We're getting blamed for their actions, uh, which as you know, is not accurate. Uh, you know, a lot of good people are fleeing the agency. You know, that was uh, one email. Uh, here's another one says the things that, you know, Steve, things that BLM are a mess for sure. There's there's no real plan. Uh, they really don't care about employees at all. Uh, you know, they, and they don't you know, just don't seem to know what we do in headquarters and how this move is actually going to affect their ability to get anything done. Uh, another one here, this agency is a Travesty on conservation. It's development at all cost. Uh, you know, we just hope this is one-term damage. And 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 again, Aaron, I'm just reading from some of the emails. Uh, you know, that I've uh, I've got. Here's another one: uh, fossil fuel extraction is being prioritized above everything else. Uh, they don't really care about us. And I think, you know, it's uh, uh, it's it's a consistent thread. You know, that I I see in uh, emails that that. Uh, uh, also, other members of the Public Lands Foundation, you know, the BLM retirees group, which uh, which I'm a member of, uh, are hearing similar things, and uh, and and I think these articles really mirror uh, what what all of us are are hearing from employees. You know, this is very hard on employees. Uh, you know, they have families back there. Uh, you know, and I I've done two tours back there. I spent about nine years. Uh, you know, first time I was back there as a, as a staffer, you know, and budget for law and program staff and then later uh, in a leadership position. And, you know, these are just terrifically dedicated career people that we have back there. And, you know, they do a great job. And in and, and moves like this, you know, whether it be BLM or the, the Department of Agriculture employees, I think that were, you know, they were. The economists. Called, yeah, You're going to Kansas, right, you're going to Kansas City. Uh, You know, for similar reasons, by the way, you know, we got to get you out closer to the ground, right? Similar sound bites. Uh, You know, it it creates really uh, extreme hardship uh, and and affects morale tremendously.
0: So uh, out of these 250 Bureau of Land Management employees at headquarters, do you have a guesstimate yet as to how many of them are going to actually relocate and how many are going to quit? Is this... 50%, 75%. 50%, 75%. Where, where do you think this is going to end up?
1: Well, you know, I don't have the exact numbers. The letters, I think the letters went out yesterday. Uh, you know, they sent letters, they had to send letters out to the senior executive service members. I think that may have happened a couple of weeks ago. You're going to, you know, the West Slope. Uh, the ones that went out yesterday were, you know, a lot of the staff and, and the others. And so, you know, they're given, I think, 30 days to say yay or nay to this. And, but, uh, and I don't know what that count is. I mean, at some point they'll have a tally, but based on what I'm hearing and based uh, on what my retired colleagues are, are hearing, uh, the majority of them are going to leave the agency. Uh, you know, I think more, you're going to- More see than half. It, the, yeah. uh, yes, I, more than half. And, and um, you know, when I talked to uh, one of the headquarters people, you know, obviously I'm going to mention this person's name here just uh, over the weekend. And this individual said- that even those career employees that are staying uh, that, that uh, they're so frustrated that uh, many of them are actually looking to get jobs outside the Bureau too. You know, some of those uh, that are earmarked to stay in the Washington office. So uh, with this telegraph to me is they have a tremendous morale issue. Right? These people uh, are fleeing the agency. Uh, and even those that are staying many of those uh, I mean, they're not gonna say it right, but they're uh you know they're quietly uh, you know looking to and so uh it gets back to the point I made earlier aaron is is uh you know this was totally unnecessary uh totally you know and, and employees see through this I think there was you know saying in the military right you can't fool the privates right they all, they all right. know what's going on. And and and, and this is no different.
0: uh, So so Bernhardt's Bernhardt's claim that this will bring staff or bring decision making closer to the land that BLM manages. You don't think that's an honest argument?
1: Well, you know, the word that comes to my mind, you know, really nonsense, you know, because,
0: you know, 97
1: percent. Uh, the agency employees are are out in the field. They've always been in the field, and you've had this three uh, percent and what we say the bubble, so to speak, and it's it's senior career leadership and and their staff, and and there's a reason for that, right? These these are policy people, so you really got to look at there's the field mission, right, and what is delegated to the field, and there's the headquarters mission. So, where is the best place? for the headquarters mission, which is right, working with the Hill, working with OMB, working with other agencies, working with all the NGOs, all of which are there in Washington, DC, uh, to be effective for the agency and getting budget and so forth. Where is the best place for those people to be? Uh, well, you know, it's not on, it's not in a Grand Junction or any place else out in the West, right? It's 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 there in the bubble where they can be most effective. How is this a uh, model inefficiency? I, you know, I, I I've been at this many many years, and I think you could ask uh, uh, any PLF member, Public Lands Foundation member. There's over 600 of us. I think cumulatively, if if you look at all of us, there's thousands of years, probably of <laughs> experience, in this type of thing, and so. Uh, it's just totally unnecessary.
0: So so they've created this brain drain. They've created a situation where you're you're going to be losing cumulatively hundreds, maybe a thousand more years of, of expertise across the agency. It seems to me that you're left with two possible explanations. Either it's incompetence and they didn't realize what they were going to be creating or it's intentional and the brain drain... To David Bernhardt and William Perry Pendley, the acting director of the agency, they see this as a feature and not a bug. Do Do you have a sense of which which of those explanations holds water?
1: Well, you know, you, you always want to give them. You know, you, you try first. We try to give them the benefit of the doubt, right? They just don't understand, uh, uh, you know, the Washington office words and and but. You know, the more the more we look into this, you know, and the more you know, we think this through, uh, you know, if you want to, as I said, the Washington Post, you know, I, I said, you know, if I think something, the fact that, you know, if I wanted to dismantle an agency, this move be in my playbook, and uh, and I still believe that. So, if you want to make an agency ill, Ill, Ill you know, uh, to I would say eliminate an agency, right? i are taking eliminate an agency like the BLM. The first step to that, to me, is you make them irrelevant in the nation's capital. That would be the first step. And uh, uh, so, by doing that, what you're doing is you're you're weakening the agency's influence in the power bubble of the United States and the nation's capital. And so, what what you're left with, right, is 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 politicals in D.C. So. You're eliminating international collaboration and national policies, weakening the agency's influence on national public lands issues in the nation's capital. And, you know, how can that not be deliberate?
0: So let's look at look at how that plays out then on something we're seeing right now. We've got wildfires burning in the West, particularly California right now. Interior's Office of Wildland Fire, as I understand it, oversees the fire budget process across all of interior. So you've got BLM and several other agencies. And of course, you also have to work with the forest service when it comes to fighting fires. So is this creating a situation then where BLM is either at a disadvantage or out of the loop when it comes to working with just in this one case, the office of wildland fire?
1: Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. You know, a little history on that office of wildland fire, uh, you know, the BLM, before that existed, you know, the first part of my career, you know, the BLM did all the budgeting for Interior Fire. In fact, the, you know the guy that did all that—I know the guy's name. He's a friend of mine. Used to work in Oregon, and he, you know, he did all that. And then when BLM moved their fire leadership out to Nipsey, uh, right, with the in Boise, you know, similar talking point, yeah. like, right, to and Boise to get them, you know, closer to the ground. It, it really left a void in D.C. You know, it left a, a void, but these people. They're not going to have uh, the assistant directors and their lieutenants that face-to-face contact that is so important. So let me give you an example. Uh, when I was back there uh, as deputy director, a lot of these political people in D.C. and the others—they, I mean, they'd heard my name, but they really didn't know who I was. So you have to build relationships with these people in trust. And uh, and I had to build those with the secretary's office, the secretary's office with their staff, with OMB, right, with uh, with all uh, the other leadership, the other agencies, uh, you know, Park Service and and DC. And I, and and you you build those, you know, not only in meetings but having coffee down the cafeteria. If I was just a voice on a conference call or an occasional fly-in on an airplane, no way could I build those relationships.
0: You, ha- you have to be there face-to-face. Yeah.
1: You've, got, you've got to be there face-to-face. There's so many discussions that happen, you know, downstairs in the cafeteria. Or, uh, you know, I, I don't think the employees have any idea.
0: Uh, and
1: they don't need to, right? That's the field. It's not their focus. How many, uh, right, I call it milk and cookie session, <laughs> coffee, you know, I had with OMB staff uh you know between the, the OMB office up the street and interior, uh, you know, the, the problem of going into OMB is you have to go through all that White House security, right? It's a hassle. So you so you meet them for coffee or something somewhere and you discuss issues like whether it be wild horse and burros, you know, you know, mining, uh, Sage Grouse, they like to get around the political firewall, right? They like to get town the to career people that have been out there on the ground and talk to them and 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 that's just, I could fill a half hour with examples like that, uh, OMB and, and those discussions I had with OMB, face-to-face discussions and those relationships I felt were critical for BLM getting funding. And, and I, could, I could go all the way across the board and, and, and the assistant directors were doing the same thing and their staffs were doing the same thing. And so I'm getting back to the importance of these things that when they're out west, in Grand Junction, Colorado, it's over right? The face of the BLM back there, uh, people, it's going to be political.
0: So and let me ask then, looking forward, uh, we're we're heading into a, a presidential campaign and we've seen public lands issues come up already. If you got a call from any number of these campaigns that are thinking about campaigning out West and how to Talk about public lands and what to do about these agencies, you, BLM the the USDA economists. what advice would you give any of these campaigns on what sh- what how to undo the damage? because it sounds like we're now at the at the point where there is significant possibly permanent lasting damage being done both to these employees and their operational capabilities. If someone – if a campaign came to you and said, all right, give us a platform, the top three things a future candidate or a, a future president could do on day one to reverse the damage, what's at the top of your list?
1: Yeah, and, and this is as a retiree. Those career people, you can't go right. there, They, they, right? they, they can't say that. So they, 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 have <laughs> you, right?
0: they have to come to you to ask this question. <laughs>
1: yeah that'll get you in trouble At least you used to right <laughs> but, I, <laughs> well, yes. but yeah if they, came, if they came to me uh you know and and asked me those questions uh first of all, you know some of these things I've seen in the past you, you know they they can be undone and 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 in some of the discussions I've had with the employees, they're saying well you know in two years the BLM's gonna get whipsawed again right if the if the if the if the white house changes and and we'll all be coming back uh and 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 that's true i think um i think for the for the good of the agency and in the, in the public lands i think uh uh it, it, it's important uh to have this career leadership and and their staff in the nation's bubble and i would hope that down the road that that would happen again uh, operational people uh, not so much but, but getting the policy
0: hope, folks back into dc has to be a priority yeah so i think Right, I would see that as a
1: priority. Get, getting them back there, them inside the bubble, uh, and you know, for not only uh, the good of the American people, right, for implementation of FLIPMA, for multi-use and sustained yield, uh, you know, the, the good of the agency, right, for the good of the resource, uh, to get that three percent of those people back, you know, where they belong. Uh, and, and so I think I think that would be. Uh, a priority, you know, I, I, you know, I, I followed some of the, you know, a little of the campaign, and, and, you know, and I've, I've heard, uh, you know, various things like, uh, you know, we should uh, stop oil and gas leasing. I think it's, uh, one or two of them say stop oil and gas leasing on public lands, and I, I mean, they don't call me for advice. I, I, I would advise them against that. I think that, uh, you know, that's a worthy goal. I think that's a worthy goal. But uh, you know, because I think of the energy needs, you know, you just can't, right? The energy needs. Cut it off, cold turkey. No, no. I think you wouldn't want to cut it off cold turkey. I think you want to, you know, have a plan. Though I don't know if this country even has an energy plan. They should, right? They have, you know, plan to deal with climate change. Maybe they did and just pulled out of it in Paris, which is unfortunate. But they've got to, you know, really get an energy plan in, in a glide path for this. I think, you know there's there's more development of you know non-fossil fuel energy on public lands and that's a good thing, you know, solar power, wind power, geothermal, uh, it, because they're becoming more cost effective. And and that's a positive. Uh, and so uh, you know, to say, yeah, we're just gonna stop this on, on, on public lands, you know, if I, I can almost I I I don't think that's a sound bite I would recommend or even want to use, but a glide path, right? A plan. Uh, to get the country there, uh, you know, it's 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 and and sustainable, so it's not, uh, you know, it's not things like uh, there's camps that say we should not have livestock grazing out there, right? Well, I'm not in that camp. The camp I'm in is, you know, if you are meeting the resource objectives, right, the range and health standards, right, I'm with you, right, I'm with you. Uh, for, for oil and gas development, it's It it really gets down to development in in the right places, and and every place is not the right place. I think, uh, you know, there are some areas that are just too special to develop. Uh, So the the public lands play a role, but keep in mind, if you look at uh, Federal Land Policy and Management Act of 1976, uh, and I actually, uh, you know, I was going to talk to this, I pulled out something from there, and it says here, then I can, you know, you do things in a manner that will protect the quality of scientific, scenic, historic, ecological, environmental, air and atmospheric water resources and archaeological values, and where appropriate, will preserve and protect certain public lands in their natural conditions, have wide food and habitat for fish, wildlife, and domestic animals, provide for outdoor recreation, heat, heat occupancy and use. And that's out of foot uh, but but what we have now uh, and what the employees tell me is is things are really getting out of balance right they're leaning right now over towards the extraction side and I'm hearing this consistently I you know, read about this and and so it's it's out of balance now so this 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 business about uh, trying to balance all the uses that I just talked about uh, is has shifted. And and I don't think that's a good thing.
0: The priority has to be restoring that balance to where it says it should be under the law.
1: Yeah, I, it, it, it really needs to be balanced. So, so it's multi-use and sustained yield, right? So, so multi-use is all those things. It's energy development, it's recreation, it's, it's quality habitat, it's domestic livestock raising, it's uh, like forest products. But sustained yield is not in a smaller phone. <laughs> mm. you know. It's it's out there too, and I don't know if you want to talk about greater sage grouse or not, but you know that's another example I could give. But but, uh, well, we're you know, we're
0: we're, we're running good. short on time, but I, I I do want to get you back because I'm sure we will have more sage grouse episodes coming in the future. But before we let you go, since we're we're out of time, I do want to ask, looking back over your four decades in almost four decades in public lands. In DC, out of DC, are there any favorite posts where you got to work that you just love to go back and visit uh, because of your time there?
1: Oh yeah, you know I, I've had, you know, my wife and I, Lynn and I, were adding up the other day. You know, I've had nine duty stations in what, almost forty years. It's sort of like a gypsy life and. And, you know, and we've enjoyed every one. Uh, you know, and some of the BLM and some in the Forest Service, but and even DC. You know, we had a great time back in DC. But looking back on it, believe it or not, if I look at you know two things that come to mind, I'll give you one for BLM and one for Forest Service. And the BLM, we had a you know, I we spent several years in Lake County, Oregon, Lakeview, Oregon, and. Um, you know, the place really grew on. So this is, this is the Oregon Outback. This is a town of 2,500 people. Look, the county has 5,000 people. There's not a stoplight in the whole county. It's very rural. They're very dependent on public lands for their, their, their economy. They have a mill there. And my wife was the only female medical practitioner in the whole county, (laughs) in the entire county. And, uh, you know, and, you know, our kids, uh, you know, graduated from high school there and Active in the community it was it was a wonderful place, and I still go back down there it's, it's such a wonderful warm community and they uh they embrace the government employees so lake county Oregon, Oregon out back it's beautiful and the forest service um you know when I was on the Walla Whitman up in northeast Oregon, uh, you know I used to go packing a lot up in the wallawa mountains and in the elkhorn mountains, uh particularly up in the eagle calf wilderness and you know, horses and mules and you know we had horses we still do by the way <laughs> we still have horses and and um i uh I still love to go up in the law was, uh and uh you know on horseback uh and uh it's it's just such a a beautiful part of Oregon a beautiful part of the country and uh the things that i I did what I like most about my time I think it was working with the the people I think it was working with my colleagues with their queer people and working with the communities. Um, I learned so much about collaboration from the communities that I worked in. Uh, you know, it'd be the Oahi Collaborative in, you know, Oahe County, uh, Idaho, the, uh, the collaborative they had, uh, the NRAC up in Wallach County, Oregon. Uh, working with these collaboratives and these, uh, people that lived and worked in those, in those communities, many for other lives. Um, it was warning. so rewarding. Uh, so, there you go.
0: Steve Ellis spent 38 years in public lands and public policy. He is a former deputy director for operations at the Bureau of Land Management, among many, many other titles. Steve, thank you so much for your time and your stories and your insight today. Really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome, and uh, have a have a nice uh, nice day and a wonderful fall.
0: Let's wrap up with a look back at this week in Western history. We are going back to what may be the very first scandal of the nation's conservation movement in 1909. That's when Collier's Magazine published an expose that would create a rift in the Republican Party and drive Teddy Roosevelt out of the party. And it has some remarkable echoes in today's revolving door at the Interior Department. The whole incident is now known as the Ballinger-Pinchot Affair, Pinchot, of course, is Gifford Pinchot, who was Teddy Roosevelt's chief forester. Ballinger is Richard Ballinger, who had been Roosevelt's head of the General Land Office, the predecessor of the Bureau of Land Management. During the Roosevelt administration, Congress passed a law that restricted land ownership in Alaska, but land claims filed prior to 1906 would be honored. So, July of 1907, you have a syndicate run by J.P. Morgan and Simon Guggenheim, basically known as the Alaska Syndicate, they bought a share of 33 of those claims that had been filed before 1906. It was a coal speculation move. That purchase, by the way, was illegal, but secret. If it had been uncovered at the time, the land claims would have been invalidated entirely. So in 1907, you've got the head of the land office's Portland division, a 24-year-old named Louis Glavis. He heard rumors of the syndicate's involvement, he started to investigate. But Ballinger, the Interior Secretary, got a visit from a Washington state politician who was also one of the claimants to the land in Alaska. And shortly after that visit, Ballinger ordered the claims to be clear-listed, the first step toward giving an outright deed to the land. Glavis from the Portland office got wind of Ballinger's order and talked him into rescinding it, But after that, Ballinger resigned from the land office and moved back to Seattle, where he promptly became the lawyer for those land claimants who had secretly sold half of their interests to the Alaska Syndicate. Now, this should start to sound familiar if you have been listening to this podcast and the history of David Bernhardt. All right. So Teddy Roosevelt leaves office in 1909 and William Howard Taft becomes president. Who did he pick for interior secretary? Richard Ballinger, of course. Conservationists were apoplectic, hiring a coal lawyer essentially to oversee the public lands that Teddy Roosevelt had worked so hard to protect. Ballinger pretended to recuse himself from those Alaska land claims, but he pressed for a fast hearing to get to a conclusion on it. When Glavis from the Portland office said he couldn't finish his investigation in time, Ballinger replaced him with a less experienced lawyer. So Glavis turned whistleblower. He asked Gifford Pinchot for help, and Pinchot told him to go straight to President Taft, accusing Ballinger of negligence and endangering public lands. Ballinger defended himself with a 700-page report, and Taft said that he spent a week with the attorney general studying the facts. Taft, lo and behold, sided with Ballinger, pointing to a report from the AG exonerating Ballinger, and the president gave the green light to fire Glavis for insubordination. Gifford Pinchot would soon get the boot as well. Glavis, the whistleblower, went to Collier's magazine, and this week, November 13th, 1909, Collier's blew the lid off the corruption with an article that caused such a scandal that Congress had to create a joint committee to look into it. But that committee was stacked with eight Republicans, seven of whom supported Taft, and just four Democrats. Ballinger was prepared to sue the magazine for a million dollars so Colliers hired a little-known Boston lawyer named Louis Brandeis to represent the magazine and Glavis during those congressional hearings. By all accounts, Brandeis's work was spectacular. He proved that the attorney general's memo that Taft claimed he used to exonerate Ballinger was actually written a month after Taft cleared the secretary. And that letter from the president was actually written by an attorney on Ballinger's staff. Now, despite all of that, the partisan committee exonerated Ballinger on a 7-5 to five vote. But Ballinger's reputation never recovered, and public opinion turned against the Taft administration. The secretary never sued Colliers, and he ended up resigning a year later. Teddy Roosevelt was so furious at the way Taft handled the situation and was trashing his conservation legacy that he challenged Taft in the Republican primary, and when he lost there... Teddy founded the Bull Moose Party to run against Taft in the general election, and that basically ensured Woodrow Wilson's election. The incident all in all was vindication for America's nascent conservation movement. It proved that Americans did care about corruption when it threatened their public lands, and ironically, surveys of that land later showed it had very little coal potential. And the incident launched the national career of Louis Brandeis, who up until then had been known mostly in Massachusetts' legal circles. Brandeis became known as a champion of people's rights and a dogged opponent of big corporations and monopolies. Six years later, President Wilson nominated Brandeis to the Supreme Court where his nomination was denounced by the conservative wing of, of the Republican Party, including former President Taft, whose reputation had been permanently damaged by Brandeis's muckraking. The nomination was so controversial that for the first time ever, the Senate held a public hearing before that confirmation vote, a tradition that carries on to this day, of course. Brandeis was confirmed. He went on to become one of America's most influential justices and legal minds it's an amazing legacy that you can trace back directly to one of the first corruption scandals on America's public lands that broke open 110 years ago this week in Western history. And that'll do it for another episode of Go West Young Podcast. Thanks again to Steve Ellis for giving us the inside scoop on what's going on with the Bureau of Land Management. Hey, also, my apologies for mispronouncing Kootenai National Forest in the last episode. It is Kootenai, not Kootenai or Kootenai, which is, I am told, the Canadian pronunciation, eh? Uh, thanks to Jason in Dillon, Montana, for pointing that out. If I have screwed up any other names, do what Jason did. Send me an email, podcast at westernpriorities.org. If you enjoyed this episode with or without any mispronunciations, I would love it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts or shared it with a friend. Also, a shout-out to everyone at the State Environmental Leaders Conference, which came to Denver this week. It was great getting to talk podcasts with you. We will be back in a couple weeks with an episode right around Thanksgiving. In the meantime, I'm Aaron Weiss, and on behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks for listening.